Welcome to the Ipse podcast. We are Ipse, the independent regulator of most newspapers and magazines in the UK. I'm your host, Vicky, and today I am joined by Fiona Fox, who is the founding director and chief executive of the Science Media Centre. So Fiona was awarded an ABE for her services to science in 2014. So she holds honorary fellowships at the Royal Society of Biology, the British Pharmacological Society and the Academy of Medical Sciences. And she has an honorary doctorate from the University of Bristol. And she is also, because <laughs> she's a very busy lady, the author of a new book called Beyond the Hype, the inside story of science's biggest media controversies, which looks at what happens when science hits the headlines, taking us behind the scenes of some of the most contentious science stories of the past two decades. Welcome, Fiona. So pleased to have you on our podcast today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. You're this very welcome. Yeah, we're so happy to have you. Um, for those who haven't heard of the Science Media Centre before, can you tell us a bit about it and what you've been up to recently? Yeah, OK. So we are um, an independent press office for science. And we were set up 20 years ago. So one of the reasons for getting the book out now is to mark our 20th anniversary um, and if your listeners um, are old enough and they go back 20 years, they will probably remember stories like MMR causes autism, Frankenstein foods kill about the introduction of GM technology into the UK. Um, they'll remember animal rights extremists uh, targeting um, scientists and universities doing animal research and basically the relationship between the scientific community and the national news media um, was not good at all so we were a response to that with the scientific community recognizing that part of this um, was the scientists themselves not engaging effectively enough so we were set up to be an independent press office for science so we have um, lots of different scientists from universities research institutes on our database and they're the ones who are very good quality scientists, but also willing to engage with the media, even these very controversial kind of headline news stories. So that's us in a nutshell. Um, what have we been doing recently? Um, like everyone else, I imagine uh, the pandemic. So, yeah. And actually, kind of really interestingly, every single thing we set up, like being a rapid reaction service for breaking news, running press briefings at the drop of a hat for um, the science and health journalists to come along and speak to. Everything we had set up was fit for purpose for the pandemic. I think there are other uh, organisations who found that the way their media operation had been moving in recent years actually meant that they had less um, staff who were able to meet the needs of journalists during this. But we had kept this focus on um, rapid reaction and, and meeting the needs of news journalists. So we would just absolutely ready for this and yeah we just spent two years helping hundreds and hundreds of, of journalists to get the best science um, explained clearly to them um, running briefings so that all of the findings that were coming out from the scientific community on this virus um, were communicated and conveyed to the mostly to the specialists our audiences mostly the science health and environment correspondents on national news so yeah, it's been a busy time. Yeah, I bet. And your, your briefings are published on your website as well, aren't they? So anybody can, can go and read them if they want to. Yeah, well, actually, we the briefings, it's, it's, I know some people use that word as a paper document. Actually, what I'm in is press conferences. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually have physical press conferences. Obviously, we did them on Zoom, but we're now going back already to inviting journalists to come into our home, which is the Welcome Collection in Houston and meet the scientists. So the press conferences um, are not, they won't find all the details of those, but each one that happened is on there. And journalists certainly 
would be able to phone us and say, I missed that briefing on the latest REACT um, study on numbers of infections going up. Can you send me a recording? And we could. Great. Um, so we've mentioned your book. Tell us a bit about it. When is it coming out? It's coming out on the 7th of April, so very timely. You can pre-order it now. Um, you, you kindly uh, said what it was called. It's, um, it's kind of my, my chairman, who is um, uh, very much an ex-news mum. He was a, the um, head of the College of Journalism at the BBC, having edited the 10 o'clock and the 6 o'clock news for many years, Jonathan Baker. He was the first person to read it, outside of uh, me and a couple of colleagues and said it's part memoir, part manifesto, and I've kind of adopted that because I think it is. I wrote it partly because coming up to the 20th anniversary, I wanted to write about some of the big stories I'd been involved in personally, um, the kind of sacking of David Nutt as a chief scientific advisor to the government because his views didn't align with them on, on uh, drugs, the uh, kind of massive furore over MMR and GM crops, things like that. So there were partly my personal memories of those stories. Um, but I think Jonathan was right. It, in each of the chapters is my manifesto for how scientists should be uh, um, engaging more openly and more effectively with journalists. So it's, it's kind of my values, my views on the, the right approach to um, science and the media as well as hopefully some bloody good yarns, uh, some good stories. And again, quite a few of the people who've now looked at it, because I'm at that stage now where I've had to get endorsements, um, just said, God, I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten about ClimateGate, where, you know, that, that poor scientist, um, 10 years worth of his emails, do you remember that, were, were um, stolen, they've never mm. found who did it, um, and dumped on the internet in, in advance of a big IPCC meeting. Um, Phil Jones was the scientist from UEA and just remembering all of that it was 10 years ago um, so things like that that people have just forgotten about so not only are they reminded my god that was a major story but secondly they get a bit of an inside track as to you know what Phil Jones was feeling um, what David Nutt was feeling when he was was summarily sacked for, for talking about his science so yeah yeah so I've actually been lucky enough to to read a copy of the book um, and I very much enjoyed it and I would recommend obviously that everybody goes and buys it. I That kind of personal memoir thing um, that you've mentioned I think is very much kind of true of the book and um, it's fantastic kind of reading your, your insights to all of those kind of really key stories. One of the things that I found really interesting was the, uh, the chapter on the relationship between scientists and science journalists. I wondered if you could speak a bit more about that. Well, well, I think the most striking, the, the interesting thing, I actually start, I wrote this book because I was due a, a, a paid sabbatical to do a work-related project. Um, so I wrote it in 2019 um, when things were pretty sleepy, actually. And it's kind of coincidental. I then had to put the whole project on hold for the pandemic. But it does feel very neat that, that it therefore got delayed two years because what my answer to that question is, it's changed so much and, and, and somehow emerging from the pandemic gives me that perspective. It was awful. The relationship was awful. And in fact, we were a proposal from a House of Lords Science and Technology Committee inquiry into the state of science and society. And if you read, and I did look back for the book, if you read the evidence to that, every scientist complained about the media and said they're, you know, over-exaggerating things and hyping science and misleading the public. And the media was like, you know, hated by the scientists. All the science journalists, and they were good enough to have a lot of science journalists give evidence at that committee, 
all blame the scientists and said they have unrealistic expectations of the media. You know, they complain if there's an article about GM that includes Greenpeace rather than uh, a scientist and they just don't get it. So honestly, relationship was terrible. And I think if you go back, they, the scientific community was late to the party that everyone else got, that you just have to engage with the public and the media. They wanted to stay in their ivory towers, come out once a year when they got a paper published in Nature and, and give the truth on the edicts of stone. And they were learning the hard way. And MMR and GM and animal rights were their kind of awakening. So, so we arrived and, you know, uh, it's very nice when people say we were part of this, but I think that it, the, um, we were set up because the community had accepted they had to change. And I think all of these different stories, you know, the battle over human-animal hybrid research and, you know, all of these stories in the book take us to a completely transformed relationship. And in fact, we had a, we finally managed to have a drinks do when we came out of the, the final lockdown, which we wanted to do all along, where we brought all of these scientists who've been running the major studies, the scientists who sat on stage that advised government, but the ones, Sarah Gilbert, who, who created the vaccine, uh, Martin Landry and Peter Horby, who ran Recovery, that amazing clinical trial that found all the drugs that worked. Pe people like Paul Elliott and, and, and uh, others who did the serology studies that published every week. We brought them together with the journalists, you know, the Nick uh, McDermott's from The Sun, who'd reported on this 18 hours a day, the PA journalists, We've got them all in one room. And I've never seen an event like that where usually the scientists are in one corner, you know, quaffing their wine, enjoying their eminent colleagues, and the journalists are all huddled in another, drinking three times the amount, <laughs> and saying, where's the after party, Fiona? Um, this time, that wasn't the case. It was it was those people, it was Sarah Gilbert, who created the vaccine, standing, talking to Sarah Bosley at The Guardian, um, and uh, what, Vicky Allen from The Daily Mail. And, and honestly, it kind of symbolised... Um, now, I'm not saying nothing will go wrong in future, but I think the relationship and I think it is partly um, newspapers and editors, and I hope some of them uh, listen to this podcast, kind of recognising over the years, valuing their specialists. Um, and really, and I've, some editors have said that to me, you know, they, they kind of knew that they got it wrong on MMR. It was a lot of political reporters writing that or social affairs or, or just general news journalists. And they got stuff wrong and you know a very safe vaccine wasn't used by many many people and we got close to losing our herd immunity for, for measles so they kind of acknowledged they got it wrong and slowly but surely the status of the science and health and environment journalists in the newsroom has gone up and it really went up in in the pandemic and what what you get there then is these great specialists who were talking to the scientists and the scientists recognized they needed the media, but they also recognised the expertise. I have many, many um, children. I remember Adam Smith, uh, sorry, Adam Finn from Bristol, who's a, a major uh, expert in this pandemic who works on vaccines and immunology, um, saying to me that he'd spoken to Chris Smythe from The Times for an hour, and Chris was telling him things. <laughs> you know, the, the, the grasp that some of these science journalists had of the science around these issues and, uh, and you know, um, science outside they have to do it all whereas that immunologist needs to know about immunology the science journalists had to know about everything they had to know about vaccines they had to know about behavioral science they had to know about every aspect of the virus and um, 
I think they did. And I think there is a mutual respect there that was completely lacking 20 years ago. Mm. And what, what would you say, kind of from your perspective, are some of the key challenges on reporting on science and scientific research? So I think, I mean, I think some of it, and, and this probably has changed less than I've just been talking about uh, huge cultural changes. But, but in the end, I think there will always be a tension between the, the process of science and the process of journalism. And I think that's probably why they got on so badly. Now there's been an accommodation. But that central thing, so you're a scientist, you, you first ask a question, you then spend, you know, 18 months, two years testing that hypothesis in a carefully designed experiment you then which always makes me laugh you then wait another six months when you finished it to get to submit to a scientific journal they have to peer review it and then it gets published so this you know two or three year process of getting from your question to your scientific findings that are ready to go out to the public it, it is very slow um, that then gets published and it's in a news release and that journalist that day, you know, this is news. And they look at it and say, because there's a press release and because it's new findings, it's a massive thing. You know, coffee causes cancer, headline of, of, of the Daily Mail or the Sun or whatever. And, and of course, the, the scientist has probably by then moved on to their next study. They've slightly adapted what they were doing. They're looking at whether coffee causes cancer in a slightly different way with new methods. And that one study was not the, the definitive answer. So that whole thing about kind of, you know, preliminary uh, science that is done in a certain way meets the news journalist and it's bang, we've got a result here. Um, and that I think is a real tension. And one of the things, the Science Media Centre literally uh, 20 years ago sat and thought right where, where do things go wrong and where can we make a difference and one of the things is the briefings that you referred to earlier those press conferences so we we will say to the scientists look come let's just get the journalists in and you tell them why this shouldn't have a headline coffee causes cancer uh, coffee is linked with uh, cancer but says small preliminary study um, so that's one of the things we do. We get the scientists to actually sit in a room with the journalists and say, please don't report it like that. You can report it like that. And there's a great, there's usually a great thing where one of the journalists says, right, if I say this, is that all right? And the scientist says, absolutely not. You mustn't say that. <laughs> and then they say, come on, give us a break. We've got to write, you, you've got us here. You want us to write this up for tomorrow's paper. How about we say this? Um, and quite often it's me actually chairing that intervenes and say, come on, guys, you can live with that. This isn't nature journal. You're not talking to your scientific peers. You're talking to the public. And they say, yes, we can live with that. So it's like a, a, a negotiation. And, and then the, the coverage is really good. And then the other thing we do is we will ask third party scientists, what did you think of this new study showing coffee is linked with cancer? And they will say something like it's only an association. It's not the, the observational study that this was can't give cause and effect. And then the journalist will copy and paste that quote in so that you've got your coffee linked with cancer. But two or three different scientists saying, uh, don't get overexcited, Karen, drinking your <laughs> coffee. <laughs> it would need to be a big clinical trial with, with humans to, to prove this link. So, yeah, lot, lots of ways in which the tension is still there, but in which scientists have worked out ways to adapt to that tension. Um, yeah. Mm, interesting. And I think another, another thing in the book um, that I was curious about is that it covers kind of print and broadcast journalism, I wondered whether you, you kind of obviously we're, we're the regulator of newspapers and magazines, but I wondered if you saw um, any differences between kind of print and broadcast journalism. 
Yeah, we, um, I think we make our biggest difference with prints and that's because they have the space and they cover, I mean, your, your, your Fergus Walsh, um, or, or your, actually I was with Lawrence McGinty yesterday, who is the, for 20 years, the science editor on ITV News. And he was making the point that he would, he would only do one story a week or, you know, for it to get on the 10 o'clock broadcast news it has to be the biggest story of the day compare and contrast that and it's a massive compare actually with the science and health journalists now who are writing three or four stories a day every day so so much more goes in and i think you know you could if you were nick davis writing flat earth news you you would kind of worry about that because you've got fewer and fewer journalists and fewer specialists compared to um uh, back in the day who are producing more and more, you know, the, the story of the news media today. But it doesn't mean they have to do it badly at all. Um, and I think the appetite for health and science stories is massive, and I think we should celebrate that. But it does mean scientists really need to work with these journalists so that they get those three or four stories right. But then they see the results. So I don't think anybody would bemoan that because it means, you know, your area of science will be in the papers every day. And if you work with them and cooperate with the journalists, it will be done well in the papers every day. And honestly, I think this is the, um, and it was great actually when I spoke a bit to Charlotte and I read the report that Ipso um, had produced about the pandemic. I was actually a bit nervous as to whether I was being over optimistic. And I, I went on a couple of panel sessions during the pandemic and found myself being incredibly positive about the way the, the print media had covered the pandemic and thinking, God, we'll, we'll, people be cross with me out there, then I'm being too flattering to them. So it was very interesting to see the Ipso report. And, and now I actually can't find anyone, including very eminent scientists who used to be a bit kind of sniffy about the print media, who think that they did badly. I, I think the consensus is that the, new, the newspapers in the UK covered this pandemic really well. And honestly, um, without getting too... Um, um, kind of bleary-eyed about it, but I think they saved lives. I think they cared about quality. I think one of their biggest jobs, you were asking earlier about the, um, some of the challenges from the pandemic, was to get through, the, they called it the infodemic, didn't they? To get through these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories that came their way every day and work out which was the good science, which was the good quality science that needed to be in the paper, um, that the public needed to read about. So that discernment of the science journalists about can cover 100 stories i'm going to cover five or ten today and i would like those five or ten to be the most credible the most reliable the most rigorous that you can get in a pandemic where everything is preliminary and new but um, and i think they did that and that role of the science journalists within the newspaper is absolutely critical choosing which which stories to take to the public and and which to say to the news editor don't touch this with a barge bowl mm, i mean certainly something um that was very interesting that came out of Ipsos COVID report. I mean, I, I don't know about you, I can't think of another kind of story that just completely dominated headlines in the way the pandemic did. And yet in terms of complaints that we received, only about kind of 10% of the complaints that we received during that period were actually about COVID, which I think, you know, speaks kind of volumes in itself about kind of the way that the pandemic was covered. Very, very striking. And that, that's why I made that point about slightly being reassured when I read your report, because I was just a bit worried that maybe I was missing it. Although 
I, I, we were so close to the front line, we didn't have complaints. We're, we're the ones that usually are emailing journalists and saying, you've got that headline really badly wrong and the scientists are really upset. We'd had less of that during the pandemic. So it was just really reassuring and very striking, yeah. I can't now um, think of a terrible, grievous example. The other thing, by the way, is that when, when newspapers did get stuff wrong, Again, I mean, I suppose, you know, everybody was living through this pandemic, weren't they? The science wasn't seen as a trivial little story. It was life and death. So you wrote an email to a journalist and said, I'm really sorry, but can you just change that word because that's misleading? And within minutes, they changed it. You know, there was a real sense of their responsibility um, here, which I think will, the legacy of that will live on. Now, it'll be really interesting to see whether mm. we, we go, one, one of the stories that, um, we were struggling with before was e cigs and there's not a lot of research comes out of the UK on e cigs a lot of it is American and a lot of it's really poor quality um, and every other day there were studies coming out there were, a lot of them were you know e cigs are a gateway to smoking and they're bad for you and they're they're killing people and they're dangerous and, and then you'd look at it and it was from some survey in Los Angeles of asking 20 teenagers whether whether they uh, smoked an e-cig and then went on to cigarettes so that the smoking cessation scientists in this country were tearing their hair out and then the pandemic came so there's a bit of me that wonders you know don't get too excited for you and we'll probably go back to absolutely terrible stories on e-cigs <laughs> anytime soon um, i guess like more more broadly kind of i hate that we're coming out of this pandemic kind of now what do you think we've learned and what are the kind of key takeaways for the future around reporting science and scientific research so i think um i think i'd say two things obviously what we would what we would like to say to, to journalists and it'll be interesting to now start having you know a glass of wine with some of them now that we can and, and reflecting um on their views of it but maintaining that sense of responsibility um, I just mentioned an example there of something that wasn't being covered well, e-cigs. Another one is statins. There was a lot of misleading reporting of, of, of this, the terrible side effects of statins that wasn't borne out by the good studies. I, I would like that sense of responsibility that I think was absolutely um, shared by most journalists of science and health reporting. It, it, it affects behaviour. It, 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 it impacts on people's decisions about how they live their life and it impacts on their health and their well-being and it really matters so just having a sense of that and I think the science and health journalists have it but I think that now actually might be brought you know fantastic stories out there this is there's no bit of this that is not saying have fun brilliant stories you know that there, there's things that get overhyped but there's things that get should be on the front page because they're massive breakthroughs and there will be you know a, a study that shows that coffee causes cat well hopefully not <laughs> let's hope not <laughs> you know there will be studies that are well conducted that are big clinical trials that that prove that x causes y um and we want them on the front page so there's no bit of this that is saying don't have fun with science and health because it's an amazing area um, and the public love it so but do it responsibly please do it responsibly um, and I think that hopefully that will stay I think the relationship between um, science and, and, and um, science journalists um, is very very strong we hope that will continue and I think that partly comes from the scientists as well realizing the incredible important role that journalists played in in letting people know honestly the the link here between the public's behaviour and their understanding of the virus 
and what actually happened with that virus was so close. I mean, if the public had not understood that they needed to behave differently, we would still be in the height of the pandemic. So, um, so I think the link here was so close, and I hope people continue to remember that. That you know, it's ironic, isn't it? Because sometimes, if I've been critical of journalists, they've said, "Oh, nobody, nobody's going to go off their statins because they read this little report in the paper." Um, and I used to say, "Come on, guys, you've got a really important role. You know, you should be celebrating this. That you know, despite all the changes in print media over many years, all the evidence that we see, including one study actually showing that people did come off their." Uh, statins after, after reading a lot in the papers you are important you've got influence and that's a good thing that means you've got a sense of purpose in your life so so use that well but also my final point on that is I just hope that editors news editors um, continue to value the the specialists in their newsroom they're, they're great journalists these are news journalists I mean they're not they're not scientists who come in and double in these are news journalists who've often come from being sports editor or general news reporter on into science so they're fantastic journalists, but they've been they 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 know what a peer-reviewed study in a scientific journal is. They know the good scientists from the bad scientists. So why not you know rely on them totally for your science coverage? So I hope that respect um, continues as well in the newsroom. So Fiona, thank you so much for coming to talk to us on the podcast today. Just remind us when when your book is out if people want to kind of hear yes, more about you can pre-order it. Um, go on Amazon or Waterstones website or whatever and pre-order it. Yeah, it's out on the seventh um, of April. And actually, given that you're Ipso and uh, journalists will be listening, you can certainly, if you want a copy, uh, we'll send you a free copy as long as you agree to kind of tweet about it. Or, Wonderful. Or write about it. Um, and where can people find out more about the work of the Science Media Centre? Yeah, you can go to our website, www.sciencemediacentre.org. Brilliant. And as always, let us know your thoughts. We are at Ipsa News on Twitter and Facebook.